Our text this morning comes from Second Peter chapter 1, <clears throat> verses 1 and 2. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. We spent the past year in that series that we had titled Understanding Current Events in the Light of Bible Prophecy. Our objective was to understand better God's plan as it's been revealed to us in biblical prophecy so that we might understand what's happening in our society today and along with that what our response ought to be to the things that are taking place today. As we know the plan of God, we're able to understand then why things are the way they are. In our study, we were introduced to the Apostle Peter's explanation that as Christians, we are now citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but we've not been taken there immediately, but been left here, assigned with responsibility, and uh, we have been identified then as sojourners, We've identified that or defined that word sojourners as being foreigners who are not living in their own country, but are living alongside the locals in order to do business for our king. So it's fitting that having completed that study, that we now go through Second Peter in this epistle, because in many ways, it is an instruction manual concerning what our responsibilities are as believers and our privileges and provision that God has given to us to live out our designed ministry here upon the earth. So we're going to go through this epistle of Second Peter. Now, I don't anticipate in doing any in-depth investigation to it, but we're going to kick the top off of it a little bit and look down in it somewhat. Uh, let's see, I taught First Peter in a Bible study, a weekly Bible study at Chowchilla, California with a group on Friday nights five years to get through First Peter. And uh, so I don't anticipate getting that deep. The environment, it's a home environment, but it's a little different than what we had there. We usually spent three hours uh, a night on once a week and five years into the study. But as I indicated, I see in Second Peter an instruction manual that is to guide us to direct our thinking, which, of course, in turn directs or directly affects our behavior. 
in order that we might properly represent our King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this morning we're going to get a little background on this second epistle. Peter identifies himself as the Apostle of Jesus Christ in chapter 1, verse 1. And then he maintains that claim by implication, at least, in verse 14 of chapter 1, with a reference to the Lord's statement about His death. Now the claim is also assumed in First Peter 8, in chapter 1, verse 18, when he recalls the situation on the Mount of Transfiguration where Peter, James, and John were with the Lord and there was a visitation by Moses and Elijah up there on the mountaintop. And again, in his mention of Paul, in chapter 3, verse 15, and in the third chapter, verse 1, the author also mentions, by the way, that this is the second epistle that he has written and that it is directed to the same readers that the first epistle was written to. Now, although there's little certain external evidence concerning the authenticity of the book, uh, we have one of the early church leaders' uh, origin uh, in 250 A.D., uh, is the first written record that we have that mentions the book of Second Peter by name and uh, identifies it as being part of the revealed revelation of God. It was finally formally recognized as a one of the books of the canon in the year 397 A.D., and uh, there, there has been some objection to its inclusion as the second epistle of Peter because the language style in it is so different than the language style in the first epistle. But anyone who has spoken to various congregations or written to various congregations or groups uh, certainly recognizes there is a need to uh, adjust uh, your style or determine your style of delivery and your uh, form of presentation to correspond with the group that you are ministering to. When uh, I preach to a black congregation in their culture and in their background, I preach a little different than I do when I preached to a seminary class uh, at Channel Islands Bible College and Seminary, when I preached to the full gospel, holiness, uh, Samoan Church of God uh, in uh, uh, Oxnard, California, I preached a little different than I did to the Nyland Community Church uh, where I served as pastor. The message doesn't change. The message is the same, but the manner of delivery is to suit the circumstances and the situation that is there. And certainly, 
we can identify uh, the guidance of the Holy Spirit with Peter as he was uh, directing uh, what he was receiving from God to the new believers. And as the circumstance for believers was changing, uh, Peter writes this just before uh, he is martyred for the cause of Christ. And so uh, I have never uh, seen any legitimate challenge to the uh, fact that this is uh, an epistle written by the Apostle Peter following upon the heels of his first epistle, but written in order to instruct us even better than than First Peter does. First Peter is an instruction manual concerning our responsibility as well as our privilege to serve uh, as Christ's representatives as sojourners here. But all of that is is more focused in this second epistle. In modern times, some self-professed scholars have questioned the authenticity of the book uh, because of that uh, distinction in the style uh, and in the manner in which it is written but I think that simply amplifies God's uh, uh, ability and desire to minister to us wherever we are, in whatever circumstance we are, in a way that will be most effective to us. We find uh, this epistle of Peter then uh, being later uh, than the first epistle, but following up on it, and as I said, uh, though the style changes a bit, uh, there certainly uh, seems to be the genuineness of it and the early acceptance of the church fathers uh, relative to it would help support that. The purpose of this epistle. We find that reports on the activity of false teachers among the churches of Asia, when I speak, when the Bible speaks of Asia, it's talking about Asia Minor. It's not talking about Asia as we know it today, but Asia Minor and that area around Turkey and uh, in, in that general hemisphere uh, at that time was identified then as Asia. And uh, the churches uh, uh, apparently have come to Peter shortly before his writing this epistle uh, in his incarceration, and he seems very concerned about the effect of false teachers that were in the area. When we went through the book of Colossians, you will remember Paul's genuine concern about the danger because there were so many false teachers that had crept into the church. Well, Peter is experiencing that as well. And so he takes some time under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to address that. And of course, the best way you can deal with false doctrine is to teach true doctrine and uh, be able then to see the comparison between them. This epistle intends then to remind the believers of the importance of supplementing their faith with virtue and then adding to their virtue knowledge 
And the result then will be steadfastness. And that's a formula that we see throughout this epistle of Peter as he addresses these issues. He also turns to the Old Testament uh, as a source of reference in bringing about an understanding of what the Old Testament had to illustrate and by way of what is going on today. Uh, the, the illustrations uh, illustrate the danger of listening to false teachers. And in chapter 2, uh, we certainly see uh, his uh, dealing with that issue in a very powerful way. It reminds the believers of the approaching day in which the ungodly false teachers are going to be destroyed. When we get to the third chapter, he lays that out pretty clear for us. So in light of these facts, Peter encourages those that are reading this epistle to uh, live holy lives while they are waiting for the coming of the day of God. He has emphasized some prophetic teaching then. And in our uh, series that we just concluded, we referred to Peter a number of times as he received direct revelation concerning the things that are coming to pass. The date for the writing of the epistle was quite close to the end then of the apostle Peter's life when he was himself going to be executed for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. He sensed, and we see that in chapter 1, verse 15, that the year was near, and so he wanted to provide additional information to sustain the remaining believers because they too would be facing persecution in the things that were ahead. Now, according to chapter 3, verse 16, several of Paul's writings were already in circulation at that time. You remember last week we mentioned that Peter said Paul writes some things that are hard to understand. And so some of Paul's writings uh, were already at that time in circulation. So we would place the time of the writing about 66 A.D., remembering that Christ was crucified in 30 A.D., and then in 66 A.D. then is the most accurate time I can place this because uh, Peter uh, died in martyrdom uh, in 67. So it just seems to be prior to his being uh, killed. Look with me then at the text as we work our way through it uh, in our introduction this morning. As I've already said, the first epistle of Peter was an instruction manner, a manual guiding them on their responsibility as believers and their privilege as believers. And he coins for us that term that we've used throughout our series uh, uh, on prophecy, that term of sojourners, that is foreigners, not living in their own country, but living alongside the citizens in order to do business for the king. 
Peter is the one that uh, brings that term out so strongly and helps us identify. Paul uses the term that we're ambassadors for Christ and that representation. And Peter uses this term as a sojourner. So, Second Peter addresses issues concerning the circumstances and the challenges that as sojourners, as foreigners not living in our own country, we are going to face as prophecy is fulfilled and the plan of God is played out. It's kind of comparable to Paul's second letter to Timothy, which was written by Paul when he was awaiting execution himself. And so the the two letters have that urgency and that similarity in their association. It focuses on the last days, and I put an outline, I'm not sure how close I'll follow that, but I put an outline uh, in your study guide today uh, to at least give you a understanding of where this goes uh, uh, and what our study is going to involve in the weeks that are ahead. No, I don't anticipate five years with it. I don't think we've got five years to go, but uh, we'll we'll cover it uh, much quicker than that. In chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we have the introduction. In chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, we have some admonitions concerning Christian virtues. And then in verse 15 through through verse 18, we have some documentation that involves the personal testimony on the part of the Apostle Peter. And then there is documentation through the fulfillment of prophecy, verses 19 through 21. And then there is a section where he presents some warnings concerning false teachers. The second chapter is the area in which he presents these warnings. In verses 1 through 3, he identifies the purpose and the methods of false teachers. And then there's some illustrations of that given. Uh, among the angels, the, the false teaching relative to angels, and then the false teaching relative to Sodom and Gomorrah, and how that played out. Those are examples that are given to us. And then we have some assurance concerning God's judgment, that He is going to judge false teachers. Uh, so many times in my own ministry I've said, how does God tolerate people presenting such falsehood as his word, as his teaching, uh, he has to be a lot more patient than I. Well, of course, if you know both of us, you know that there is a bit of difference uh, uh, in his patience uh, than mine. But we we are given some assurance that God is going to bring judgment uh, on these false teachers in verse 9 of chapter 2. The attitude of the false teachers is presented to us in chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. False teachers uh, 
uh, are said to present then a false hope in verse 17 of chapter 2. False teachers' words uh, Peter identifies as being empty and meaningless in chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. False teachers attempt to attract and allure congregations through the lust of the flesh, according to chapter 2, verse 18. False teachers subvert true Christianity, chapter 2, verses 19 through 21, and then false teachers revert to their former waves, to their old waves, in verse 22. So that section in chapter 22, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 22, focuses primarily on false teachers. And as we get there, you'll see the similarity uh, with what's described here and what's going on in our world today and in the, quote, Christian or church age as we see it playing out. When we get to chapter 3, we have a statement of purpose reiterated. Usually we put that statement at the beginning, but uh, when we when we study speech and giving speeches, we are usually instructed to let the people that are listening to us know where we're going and then to go there and then in the conclusion to remind them where we've been. So Peter begins this epistle by identifying the need for being alert and aware to of false teachers. And so as he closes this epistle, he drives that point home in chapter 3. So there's just three chapters of this epistle. And in chapter 3, he stirs remembrance in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He warns those that are scoffers in verses 3 through 7. He validates the faithfulness of God in verses 8 through 9. He instructs then in the manner of the second coming what God has revealed to him in verse 10 and admonishes then to faithfulness. He draws that to a conclusion in faithfulness uh, and our need to be faithful after we, as we understand what God has provided. That's so much uh, easier for us then to rest in faith knowing what God is about. So that's the basic outline of our, my intention uh, as we go through this study. Uh, two primary focuses then. Knowledge, and that knowledge is going to produce in us peace and tranquility in the midst of conflict and that knowledge is going to produce in us then instruction as to what our role is and what we are to be doing day by day. We have allowed the church and Christianity to become a spectator religion rather than a participatory. Is that a word? Well, it is now. Uh, our participation in it. Uh, the church is not uh, designed by God for us to 
simply be observers and for us to go in and uh, listen to uh, the preacher and what God is uh, directing through them, but it is to give us a channel through which we are to utilize the gifting that He's given us, the knowledge of His Word, and then follow those instructions as a manual for life. Not just living life, but understanding what our purpose is. Because while I have seen in my own personal ministry that uh, the majority of the various congregations to which God has uh, led me, the majority of those uh, understand uh, the need to uh, have some knowledge of the Word of God simply to get through life. But I have found it a minority that understands the Word of God is designed to instruct us not so we can get through life, but so we can live out the design that God has for each one of us and be able to fulfill that purpose. So that's going to be our objective as we uh, go through our study. And this morning we're going to look at verses 1 and 2, which we have identified then as an introduction. Simon Peter, a servant, and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The identification of the writer begins with the first two words, Simon Peter. Simon is the most common Hebrew male name at the time that this was written. They seemed to get in a rut uh, when it came to names, and uh, you can find that. You would think they had completely run out of names when you try to pronounce the names that are there. But uh, uh, Simon was the most popular male name uh, Hebrew name at the time of Christ. It meant to hear, to listen. Uh, both aspects of that, uh, in, in order to hear properly, we're going to have to listen. Uh, but you can hear the sound thereof and not understand the context and the message thereof. And that's where the, that description of listen involves. It's to listen uh, to hear with understanding. And that was the name that was given to uh, Simon uh, at his birth. Now, he is also identified here as Simon Peter. As a matter of fact, Jesus identifies him uh, as Peter, actually assigns to him this name of Peter. Now, the word Peter is translated from the Greek word Petros. I noted that in your outline for you, P-E-T-R-O-S, because there is some confusion in Christianity that goes way back to the third century, uh, and especially when Constantine uh, brought uh, the church and the Roman government together, uh, they began shortly thereafter uh, 
to place Peter on a little different plane than the other apostles. And uh, it really amounted to a misunderstanding, a misinterpretation of what the Lord had said to Peter. Peter uh, was addressed by the Lord along with the other disciples, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And Peter spoke up and said, Thou art the Christ. Oh, who do men say that you are? Well, some think you're John the Baptist or Elias or one of the other prophets. And Jesus said, Well, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. The remark of Jesus that followed that has led to the Roman Catholic Church having a pope through all these years. It's through their misunderstanding of the text. Jesus said to Peter, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And whosoever you shall bind on earth, I give you the keys to the kingdom. And whosoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whosoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And they said, oh, you see that Peter means rock. And so Jesus was saying, it's on Peter I'm going to build my church. And Peter is given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And Peter is given the authority to bind on the earth or to bind in heaven. He is given as the Pope that authority. Little Greek would have been required for them to understand there was a problem there. But they were hung up in Latin by then and uh, and missed the point. Jesus, thou art Peter. P-E-T-R-O-S. Upon this rock, P-E-T-R-A, I will build my church. When he said, I give to you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, it's plural. He didn't say, I give singularly to you, Peter. He said to his followers, I give to you, my followers, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And then our English text says, And whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. No, the Greek text says, And whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall have already been bound in heaven. And whatsoever you loose on earth shall have already been loosed in heaven. Those things are already foreknown. We are simply the instruments by which that becomes literal and uh, fulfilled. And so the word Peter, and as I said, Jesus gave him that name. The word Cephas, we see the word Cephas uh, sometimes in our, our English text of the New Testament. Uh, Cephas is simply the Aramaic for the Greek word Petros and uh, identifies him as such. And Jesus is the one that identifies then Peter in this way. He's a, the, the difference between Petros and Petras, Petros is a small pebble. Could be a chip off of a boulder. But Petra is the monolith. 
And the monolith upon which the church is built is the reality of the of who Jesus is as Peter stated it. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the rock upon which the church is built. Peter's a small pebble along the way, an important one, and certainly made uh, has had a dramatic influence uh, upon the spread of Christianity uh, as one of the inner circle of Peter, James, and John uh, among the disciples that Jesus gave special attention to because of the role that they were going to be playing then in the early days of the church. So Peter identifies himself as a small pebble. Simon Peter. Simon, the name that was assigned me at birth, and Peter, the name that is assigned to me by our Lord. He says, Simon Peter, a servant. I would remind you that in the Greek language in which this was originally written, there is no such thing as an indefinite article. What's an indefinite article? The word a or the word an. A apostle as opposed to the apostle. If the writer was wanting to, or the speaker was wanting to identify a specific one, he would use the article, the Apostle or the servant as it is here. That's not used in the text. Nor is there the word a or an in the Greek alphabet, uh, in the Greek vocabulary. So when you leave the article out, you are emphasizing the character or the quality of whatever person or whatever uh, object you're speaking of whatever the noun might be, if you leave the article out, you're talking about emphasizing the character of that person or the character of that position. The word here is servant. So he's talking about the character of servanthood. He does not refer to himself as a servant or the servant, but servant. Now the word itself is translated from doulos, that means bondslave. Like the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter identifies himself as a bondslave of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a slave that is a slave voluntarily. Been redeemed and given his freedom, but chosen to remain in the household as a servant. So, Peter identifies himself as Simon Peter, bond slave, and apostle. Now you'll notice before the word apostle is the English word an, and I have just told you that in the Greek language there is no indefinite article So he doesn't have an, but it's not the apostle, it's apostle, identifying the aspects of an apostle. Now, an apostle, and we've studied that on other occasions, but I'll jog your memory with it. 
An apostle is one who has the battle plan and the authority to execute the plan. The word apostle generated from the Greek navy. Greeks were great military uh, people, but they were not having much success in their naval battles. And uh, so they discovered the problem was that when they would bring the captains of the ships together and they would lay out the battle plan and then send them to their ships and their crew, uh, there were some that were going to the enemy and selling the battle plan to the enemy. So the Greeks were, they didn't pay their sailors very well or their captains well enough. They could make more money by selling the battle plan to the enemy. And so they were not very successful in their military campaigns. So uh, Alexander the Great was a genius when it came to a military strategy. So he came up with a new office in the Navy. The office of the Apostolos. The Apostolos was the one that would receive the battle plan and all the captains and the crew would be on their ships and the Apostolos would get in a little skiff and he would go to the first ship and give them the part of the plan they needed and send them out. And then he would go to the second ship and make his way through. So they did not have time. They didn't have cell phones then. So they didn't have time to sell the the plan to the enemy. And overnight, the Greek military, the, the navy became a, a tremendous fighting force as they covered that hole with the office of the apostolos. That's the term Jesus came to use to relate to those in his choosing that would be given the battle plan and the authority to execute it. And so we have the apostles of the church. There's no no lineage that goes beyond that first generation, though some churches have attempted to, and they have some they call apostles today, but uh, uh, they don't meet the biblical standard for apostles, and we won't go into all that right now. But uh, he identifies himself then as one, just one, not the one, but one that has the battle plan and the authority to execute that plan. It is Simon Peter, a bond bond slave and apostle, and one that has the battle plan and the authority to execute it of Jesus Christ. Notice, He does not use the word Lord here, but he uses the word Jesus and the word Christ. Now, I have told you in the past, and I will continue to tell you in the future, and remind you along the way, that nothing is incidental in the Word of God. And so when we have uh, uh, in the, the title, Lord Jesus Christ, in Scripture, and you'll find that many places in Scripture where it's Lord Jesus Christ. The word Lord, when that's used, always refers to His deity. The word Jesus 
refers to his humanity. And the word Christ refers to his role as Savior, God becoming man and living among us and uh, uh, fulfilling the plan of God and providing our redemption. The word Christ is used. So the Holy Spirit has guided these holy men of old as they wrote Holy Scripture in to place the emphasis where the Holy Spirit wanted that emphasis placed. And so we have Lord, His deity, Jesus, His humanity, Christ, His messiahship, His role as our Savior. In some passages, you just have Lord. The emphasis is on His deity. In some, you just have the word Jesus. The emphasis is upon His humanity. In others, you just have the word Christ. The emphasis is upon his role. The combinations thereof then are varied. Sometimes you have the Lord Jesus. Uh, You may have the Lord Christ. You may have Jesus Christ as we do here. His humanity and his role as Savior. His deity is not the point of emphasis here, though it certainly doesn't diminish his deity The point of emphasis is the God-man who became the Savior, the Messiah of the world. And uh, it is in that role that Peter sees himself as Simon Peter, bond slave, one with the battle plan and the authority to execute it of Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, along with His humanity. Now then, He addresses, He's identified Himself as such, and then He addresses this to them who have obtained like precious faith with us. To the ones, having as a matter of principle, once and for all obtained. I remember in my early childhood, one of the distinguishing factors that the pastor tried to make from time to time was we as Baptists believe in eternal security. At that point, there was no other mainline denomination that believed in eternal security. Once saved, always saved, as they liked to say it. Most other denominations believed it required perseverance. It required work on your part. That's changed today. We find that that others have come to understand that. But the Word of God is dogmatic. And the grammar and the language of the New Testament is such that it's unmistakably true that we have been given eternal life and it's given in uh, one form of Greek grammar is the perfect tense. It's given in a completed action in the past. The result continues forever. It's given in an unusual aorist tense, a very particular aorist tense in the Greek uh, that they developed, Alexander developed. That means a point of time And that point of time is literally taken out of time and perpetuated forever so that it is irrevocable. And uh, 
the scriptures then as it speaks of our salvation, either in the perfect or in the aorist uh, that defines, that particular aorist that defines that. But having obtained like precious faith here, having obtained is a participle, then that simply means it's a matter of principle. God has established a matter of principle for those who have once and for all obtained like precious faith as Peter. Like precious simply means equally precious. And the word faith comes from the word pistine, which means to put your weight or your dependency upon something. It identifies a dependency. Peter's then having identified himself, now identifies those to whom this is written. To the ones, having as a matter of principle, once and for all, obtained like or equally precious dependency with us. With us referring to the other apostles and the early believers in the church. Faith, that like precious faith, that dependency. As I said, the literal meaning of the word is to place your weight upon something. Your dependency then upon that. And we're told that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's why it's so important for us to read the Word of God uh, consistently and to be taught the Word of God because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So Peter says, I'm a servant. I'm a bond slave of Jesus Christ. And I have been given, along with some others, the battle plan. And I've been given the authority along with them to execute that plan. And I am writing to those who have, as a matter of principle, once and for all, obtained equally precious faith or dependency with us. And then he explains how we obtained that. Through the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ. Through is actually in the sphere of. We've obtained that. It's the instrument through which we've obtained salvation. But what we have obtained is God's righteousness. The word righteousness, daikonosune, means that which conforms to the specifications of the plan, of the blueprint. And we have God's conformity. Our righteousnesses fail. We do not always consistently conform to God's plan for our life. But Christ conformed to that plan in every matter. And so God's righteousness becomes available to us. So His meeting the standard is substituted for ours when we call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. We receive credited to our account the absolute perfection of Christ 
That's the only way we can stay saved. That was the only way we could get saved in the beginning because our weaknesses are of such that we cannot attain that on our own. So Peter says, I'm writing to those who have as a matter of principle obtained equally precious faith with us through conforming to the specifications of the blueprint of God by the means of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, he doesn't use the word Lord. He uses the word Savior, Soteros, the Deliverer. We have a Deliverer, and then he emphasizes his humanity, the man, Jesus, and his role as Messiah, the Christ. Peter introduces himself then as the writer using two marks of identification. He's a bond slave and an apostle. So the text reads this way. Simon Peter, bond slave, and one with the battle plan and the authority to execute it to those who have as a matter of principle once and for all obtained by their action, our faith, our placing our dependency upon Him, equally precious dependency with us in the sphere of the conformity to the specification of the plan of God, even our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the name. There's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved except the name of Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the fulfillment of that which God had prophesied concerning the seed of the woman and has delivered us. In verse 2 then, Peter continues his introduction, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace be multiplied. The word order here is a little different in the original writing in the Greek text. Grace to you. John MacArthur picked up on that in his radio program, TV program, is grace to you. This says, grace to you and peace be multiplied to you. God's bestowing of His righteousness for salvation. But grace goes beyond salvation, goes to living the Christian life, so God's resources are available to us. And then in eternity, grace is God's realm, His very kingdom, ours at Christ's expense. Grace to you. And along with that grace, with God's righteousness, with His resources, and with His realm, comes peace. That word peace, Irene, is from the Greek word, which means an inner attitude of tranquility, resulting in stability. Not just tranquility, but tranquility that results in stability. May that be multiplied, Peter says, to you. 
the objective mood is here with may that be multiplied. It's, it's a wish on the part of the apostle Peter that God's righteousness, resources, and realm and his peace be multiplied to us. That's the expressed wish on the part of the writer Peter. And then he explains how that's going to be achieved. Through, in the sphere of, in the environment of knowledge. Now there are a handful of Greek words that are translated knowledge. So every time you come to the the word knowledge, uh, it's important that you understand which particular Greek word you're talking about. The same is true in the Old Testament and the Hebrew. We're dealing with the Greek New Testament here. I remember one time my my daughter called me just before I was going to class uh, when we had the Bible college and seminary. And she was on her way to a Bible study, but she said, I've got a question, Dad. I need to get settled before I, I go to Bible study this morning. said, when when Abraham took Isaac, to the mountain and was going to sacrifice him according to the instruction of God. And then God saw that he was going to follow through with that and God stopped him. The Bible says, God said, now I know, Abraham, that you believe. Now I know. She said, I thought God was omniscient. I thought God always knew. Why did he say, now I know? I said, get your Strong's Dictionary. I gave her a little run around, as fathers do sometimes, with some obnoxious uh, suggestions uh, about it. And then I said, get your Strong's Dictionary, your, your, your Strong's uh, Concordance, and you'll see which word is used there for know. It means to know through observation. He knew from eternity past in his omniscience. Now he has seen it come to pass. So words are important. And this word knowledge is epinosis. It means to have a perception that's fully a applicable then, understanding the application of it. One thing for us to know what the Word says, it's another thing for us to know with full understanding how to apply it and how we can do so. It's only through fully applied perceptive knowledge, knowledge that is put into application, that we are going to have the multiplication of peace and grace in our life. In the sphere of the fully applied perceptive knowledge of God, of God is from the source of God, that knowledge which comes from the source of God, and it's literally even of Jesus, His humanity, the Lord, His deity, of us. So, verse 2 should read this way. 
grace to you and may an attitude of tranquility resulting in stability be multiplied in the sphere of fully applied perceptive knowledge of the God. Oh, the word, the article is in front of the word God. We're being specific of the God, even the, oh, this time it's in front of the word Lord as well. The Lord of us. So as we begin this epistle, we have the assurance that Peter has a servant's heart. He identifies himself, though he's an apostle, has the battle plan and the authority deck. He identifies himself as a bond slave of Jesus Christ. But he has the battle plan and he has the authority to execute it. And so as we work our way through this epistle, we'll be able to see then the battle plan that relates to that which he is addressing. The letter is addressed to those who have acquired the same precious dependency upon God that he has. The dependency in the sphere of the conformity to the plan of God that's made available to us through Jesus Christ, who is the God. So Peter not only expresses his wish for us to have tranquility and along with it then stability and that that be multiplied, but he identifies that as a potential. We have, based on our application of the knowledge that we receive that we're willing to embrace from the Word of God, that potential then available to us through our Lord Jesus Christ, who is, in fact, God. So, let's seek that objective in the weeks that are ahead in our study of this epistle, that we might get a knowledge of God that we can apply to our life that will result in the multiplication of grace and peace in our life that our joy might be full. But of course, it all begins at salvation. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The same Bible says, with the heart man believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He begins at salvation. And then there is the process whereby we are now having capacity to understand the things of God. We have to go through the process of studying the Word, of understanding the Word. And then it's kind of necessary that we apply it (laughs) when the circumstances arise. Because we have to be reminded of that from time to time. What does the Word say? Oh, yeah. And that's going to produce, that's going to multiply our acquisition of resources and our enlargement in the realm of God. It's going to magnify the peace that we have in our walk.